Well, if you're turning your Bibles now to the book of Acts, the book of Acts, as we continue in on our study, the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. The book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. We began this book a few weeks ago, and it has been a very, very good and exciting book, as this is a point in time in which we look at the beginning of the church, the inception of the church, the inauguration and birth of the Here in Acts, chapter 2, our reading will come from verses 1 through 13. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. The Word of God reads, When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves And they rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues, as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed. And astonished, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, And visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying they are full of sweet wine. Let's bow together in a word of prayer before we begin our study this morning. Our God in heaven, once again, what a privilege it is to look into your eternal word. For the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. And we pray that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we might see great and mighty things from thy law. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Most everyone likes new beginnings. If you own a business, you are always excited the first day when you open the doors for the very first time to see who's going to come through. When you buy a new home, there's excitement about moving in. When you take on a new job, there's excitement and anticipation of getting to know the people and the new work that you'll be assigned to do. New beginnings always have great excitement, don't they? New school, new place to live, whatever it may be, there's anticipation And in the text today, as we've looked into Acts chapter 2, the followers of Jesus were looking forward to the promise that Jesus had made to them of giving them the Holy Spirit, and there was excitement in the air. He had just been with them for 40 days, and as we looked in chapter 1, he had confirmed his resurrection, 
And undoubtedly, he was encouraging them along the way, giving them the commission which he had given to them in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and even to the remotest part of the earth. What an exciting time for them as they looked with anticipation, thinking about ministry and how God was going to empower them and how they were going to be his witnesses through the entire world. They were going to go. God giving them a commission and a vision for the future of the church. And it all begins right here in Acts chapter 2. And so we begin looking at the birth of the church in verses 1 through 3. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. This was an exciting time. This was an exciting time for the disciples. Jesus had ascended into heaven. There was fellowship. There was unity. There was great anticipation of the future of what God would do when they would receive power. And they were told to wait. And Jesus had promised them the gift of the Holy Spirit who would come upon them. And we look at this passage, and this is the birth, the inauguration, the beginning of the church. The Old Testament saints are separate. When Matthew, in the book of Matthew, chapter 16, verse 18, when Jesus said to Peter, I will build my church, he was speaking in the future tense. I will, future tense, build, future tense, my church. He didn't say, I have built my church, or I will continue to build my church. He will. It is future-looking, and this is indicated in that it has not yet been established. It is established here in Acts chapter 2, the church of Jesus Christ. And this is a church that belongs to him. It is Christ's church. The future tense is here, and it is established in John chapter 2. This is what was spoken of by, by Christ in John chapter 7, verse 37 to 39. Now, on the last day, it says in that passage, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scriptures said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. This is what they were waiting for. Anticipation of what would happen. Likely the 120 here gathered in the upper room that were mentioned in chapter 1, verse 15, gathered for the day of Pentecost. And it's no mistake that, Jesus, that this Holy Spirit here comes, and it says in verse 1, the day of Pentecost. It comes from the Greek term meaning 50th, and it's significant. It is significant because, you see, when you look back at the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 23, there were three, three key feasts that pictured Christ as well as the coming of the Spirit. The first great feast that is mentioned in Leviticus 23 is that of Passover, that of Passover. It commemorated the great event 
of the Passover, when the Lord passed over the Israelites in the land of Egypt, when he saw the blood of the lamb that was, shed, that was, that was slain and, and placed on the doorposts and the lintel, that night that the Lord took the lives of the firstborn of the Egyptians, as recorded in Exodus 12.23. In Exodus 12, 23, it said that the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts. The Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. That was the last plague that the Lord had brought upon them in order to bring them up out of Egypt. Bring them up out of Egypt, and in the mind's eye of the Jew, this was the greatest event in Jewish history, the Passover. And Jesus was the Lamb of God. He died. He died in order that he might be the Passover Lamb for us. It was a picture, the Passover feast of Christ who would die for us as the Passover lamb. And in case we don't recognize that, Paul writes about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. So in Leviticus 23, the first significant feast was the Passover, picturing Christ, our Passover lamb. The second was called the Feast of First Fruits. The Feast of First Fruits. This was celebrated on the day after Passover, the day after Passover, which some see as the day after the Sabbath. So when Jesus died, he died on a Friday. The Passover began Friday 6 o'clock to Saturday 6 o'clock. And then the next day was the celebration of the Feast of First Fruits, the day after the Sabbath. That was on Sunday. And that marked, that particular feast marked thanksgivings that were given to God. They were the feast of the harvest and the grain and the cereal harvest in the spring. So what happened on that traditional day, the day of first fruits, was that uh, uh, an Israelite would come. They would come and they would bring an offering. They would bring an offering of a sheaf of grain. That was the very first sheaf that would come. They would bring, they would tie it up, and they would bring it as an offering to God. And that was a, a, a way in which they gave and gave thanks to God. And it was an, also an expression of trust in God. Because, you see, everything had not ripened yet. Everything had not ripened yet, and they were not able to harvest the grain in its fullness. But what this was was an offering that showed that they trusted God for the future. Because there still needed to be rain, there still needed to be growth in the rest of the grain, there still needed to be the sunshine and the fertility of the, uh, of the earth bringing forth a fullness of the grain. But it was a trust that God would provide for them in the future. Now this particular feast commemorated that, and that particular feast was the, was the day after the Sabbath. It was the first day after the Sabbath. And what that reflected in Christ was just as Christ was raised from the dead, he would be our first fruits, the promise of that which was to come. And Paul explicitly, Paul explicitly calls Christ in his resurrection that of the first fruits. The resurrection of Jesus anticipates the bodily resurrection of our future. For it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, 
the first fruits of those who are asleep. And again in verse 23, but each to his own order, Christ, the first fruits, after that, those who are at Christ's at his coming. Those who are Christ's at his coming. So the Passover, that Passover was symbolic of Christ being of the Passover lamb. The day after Passover was the day of the Feast of First Fruits, Christ being the first fruits, that he was resurrected from the dead, and we will be too. Now, 50 days later was Pentecost. 50 days later was the Feast of Pentecost, of which we see here in Acts chapter 2, verse 1. You recall that we have 50 days after that. This Pentecost was also called the Feast of Weeks. It was a significant day. Those who would come would be a required feast by which all the men would be required to come. It's called the Feast of Harvest. And it was a grand celebration. You remember the Feast of the Harvest in which they were called to, to, to bring uh, the Feast of first fruits, I should say, bring a sheaf of grain trusting God that in the next 50 days, God would bring about a harvest and they would wait for the rain to come and the grain would grow and then it would mature. And as it matured, they would be able to harvest some of the grain that was ready and ripe. And so the sacrifice that was given there was a sacrifice of two loaves of barley to God. And it was the very first of the harvestable grain that was ready to be harvested. It was a grand celebration. And there were, on this occasion, there were great offerings of food and animals. It was very lavish. And it was to thank God for the tremendous bounty that he had provided, having trusted in him for that 50 days. That 50 days. It was also called a first fruits. And on that day, just like at Pentecost, they would give this offering and the Holy Spirit was given to believers on this particular day as an inheritance, as an inheritance, as they gave the very first of the grain, trusting that God would bring in the full harvest to them, that God would bring that to them which he had promised. Again, looking forward to the entire harvest just as the Holy Spirit was given on the day of Pentecost as a pledge, as a guarantee for our future, as a seal for us, as Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 would talk about, where it says in verse 13 of Ephesians 1, in him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit, of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. So Jesus' death reflected in the Passover, and then the day after that, there was another feast, feast of the, of the harvest, in which feast of the first fruits, in which his resurrection from the dead looked forward to our resurrection. And then there was the Feast of Pentecost, pictured here when the Holy Spirit is given as a promise, as a pledge for everything that would be brought in. And so it is no mistake here that the Feast of Pentecost was the day in which the Holy Spirit came upon these believers as promised by Jesus who would empower them for future ministry. So let's look and see what happens here. Verse 2, suddenly... 
there came from heaven a noise, a noise like a violent rushing wind. This is a noise. There was no wind, no blowing wind, but a noise, a thunderous noise. It filled the whole house. In fact, later on, it was so loud that the crowd outside gathered to see what was going on, filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire. There were tongues, not real fire. They looked like fire. They distributed themselves and rested on each one of them. This was a supernatural entrance of the Holy Spirit. It was the entrance of the Holy Spirit on God's timetable. It was not because of anything these disciples were doing. It was at God's designated time. And it came upon them while they were sitting. No, they were sitting. Not while they were praying. They weren't praying for the Holy Spirit. The posture for a Jew in prayer was either standing or kneeling, not sitting. So they weren't praying here for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but they were baptized and filled by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came upon them, the Bible says. And it is evident that the Holy Spirit rested, it says, above, and it came upon each one of them. And John the Baptist prophesied this, that the Holy Spirit would baptize you with the Holy Spirit, Matthew 3, 11. Now, there's a difference here between what we call the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit. I want to take a few minutes to distinguish between these two things because it's very important. There's a difference between being baptized by the Holy Spirit or in the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Holy Spirit. In this text today, they're both baptized as well as filled by the Holy Spirit. So look back at Acts chapter 1, verse 5. Acts chapter 1, verse 5. It says there, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Okay, the Lord says you'll be baptized not many days from now with the Holy Spirit. No doubt this is the event that happened. This is the event happened shortly thereafter. Jesus, within that 50-day period, says this, and there is no doubt that this particular event is what Jesus was speaking of, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. When Paul writes to the Corinthian church, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, Paul tells the church, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slave or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. Everyone who is a Christian possesses the Holy Spirit. Everyone who is a Christian has been baptized by the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, as Paul indicates to the Corinthian church, for by one Spirit we were all, past tense, all, everyone in the church, baptized into one body, one body. Everyone who is a Christian possesses the Holy Spirit, as Paul states. They were all baptized into the body of Christ. When you were saved, when God saved you, you received the Holy Spirit who indwells you, and in so doing, you are baptized into the body of Christ. This is a one-time event. This is a one-time event that happened in the past in your life when you came to Christ as a Christian. In fact, going forth after the book of Acts, Every true believer has the Holy Spirit in them upon conversion. 
After the four instances in the book of Acts regarding those who are Jews, Samaritans, God-fearers, and Gentiles, after those four particular instances in the book of Acts, in this transitional book, there is no such thing that there is a Christian without the Holy Spirit. How do we know? Paul tells us in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 9. Romans 8, 9, it says, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Anybody who doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. 1 Corinthians six seventeen. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one Spirit with him. We are not commanded to pray for the Holy Spirit. We're not commanded to seek the Holy Spirit. We're not commanded to wait for the Holy Spirit to come subsequent to our salvation. And that is an important point because there's a number of believers that believe that that's what you need to do. You may have friends or others who are part of other denominations that are charismatic that will tell you that you need to pray for the Holy Spirit that you need to be baptized by the Holy Spirit, and when you do, you will speak in tongues. You will find that there are some who will say you need to seek the Holy Spirit, and some who are part of those types of denominations who haven't spoken in tongues. Many of them are in great anxiety, waiting for that turn when they will finally receive the Holy Spirit. They are anxiously awaiting for the Spirit to baptize them. But that doesn't happen. As it says in Romans 8, 9. If you don't have the Spirit, you don't belong to God. There's no such thing as a Christian who does not have the Holy Spirit. That is what baptism by the Holy Spirit means. It means that one receives the Spirit of God upon conversion and is placed into the body of Christ. As Paul mentions, all were baptized into one body, past tense. Now, there's a distinction between the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. So, Spirit filling is different than Spirit baptism, all right? Spirit filling is a repeated event in the life of a Christian, Ephesians 5.18, Ephesians 5.18, if you look at that particular passage, perhaps it's a passage that's very familiar to you in Ephesians 5.18, it speaks of the filling of the Holy Spirit. And there's a parallel passage in Colossians chapter 3, talks about the mind of Christ being saturated with the Word of God. Ephesians 5.18 says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. It goes on, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus. All right, so in other words, Ephesians 5.18 says, don't be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. In other words, we're not to be like the person who is inebriated, who is controlled by alcohol, but we are to be the person who is controlled by in contrast, by the Holy Spirit. 
And that means that our thoughts, our attitudes, our actions are all congruent with what the Spirit of God would want, that the Spirit of God helping us to follow and obey the Word of God, helping us to enabling us to live according to the Word of God. As one commentator clarifies when they write, to be filled, quote, with the Spirit is to consciously practice the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and to have a mind saturated with the Word of God. So when we are filled by the Holy Spirit, He works in our lives, He works through our lives, helping us to walk in obedience with the attitudes, with the actions, with the motives that are congruent and consistent with the Word of God. Colossians 3, the parallel passage, 3, 16 and 17, tells us to let the Word of Christ dwell richly within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and with thankfulness in your heart to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all to the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. Being filled with the Spirit, being filled with the Holy Spirit is to be in obedience with the Word of God. When the Word of God richly dwells within us and the Spirit of God enables us to obey and to have the proper perspective and attitude when it comes to living life, how do you know if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, though? Being that it's a repeated event, being that you're not always going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, Well, some of the effects are given in chapter 5 of Ephesians, verse 19 and following, when it says that we're to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We sing and make melody in our heart to God, and we give thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus. And verse 21, we're subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And even after that, it goes on to speak of proper relationships between husbands and wives, between parents and children, between employers and employees, etc. And all of our relationships, manifestations of a godly life for one who is filled by the Holy Spirit. When one is filled and controlled by the Holy Spirit, you manifest the the fruit of the Spirit as well, and the love and joy, the peace and the patience that Paul speaks of in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. And that's the measure. That is the measure. And that is the test for us. And so you ask yourself, you ask yourself this question. Is my life from time to time or many times predominantly filled by the Spirit of God? Is my life one that is characterized by love or having a joy or, as it says in Ephesians, a a song in your heart of praise to God? Is it filled with, verse 20, always giving thanks for all things? Am I a grateful person or am I a complainer? Or am I in good relationships as far as it depends upon me, Romans 12 says, good relationships with my husband or my wife or my employer or my employee, or is it with my parents? However it is, all of these relationships come and are God-honoring when we're walking a life that is filled by the Spirit of God. It is a repeated event. As I mentioned, being baptized by the Spirit is when the Spirit of God places you, comes into your life and places you into the body of Christ. But being filled or controlled by the Spirit of God happens a multitude of times. How do we know that? 
we go back to the book of Acts. If you go back to the book of Acts and you look, for instance, at Acts chapter 4, verse 8. Acts chapter 4, verse 8. We know that Peter was among those who were in the upper room, who were filled by the Holy Spirit there. But here again, he is once again filled by the Holy Spirit. Verse 8 of chapter 4. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people. And then in verse 31 of chapter 4, these believers, and when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Paul as well. Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 9, verse 17. And then again in Acts chapter 11, Acts chapter 13, verse 9. So being filled by the Spirit of God happens repeatedly because of sin, many times we're not living a spirit-filled life because of our own selfishness, our own greed, our own self-will, our own pride, our own allowing of sinful attitudes to circumvent what we know the Word of God tells us to do. The question is, are we living a life that is filled by the Spirit of God, that has as a characteristic a heart of love, a heart of joy? heart of peace? Are you characterized by patience and gentleness in how you carry yourself of goodness, of self-control? When you are, you're manifesting a life that is controlled by the Spirit of God. It's an important distinction to make. It's an important distinction to make because, you see, many people are confused because they say that you are to seek the Spirit of God that isn't in your life, like I mentioned, in some denominations. One is baptized by the Holy Spirit at the time of conversion. You're placed into the body of Christ. It's a one-time event that happened in the past. When we live our Christian life, many times we are filled by the Spirit of God. When we surrender ourselves in obedience to God, and God enables us by His Holy Spirit to live in obedience to Him. And that is why it is so important to know the Word of God, to be saturated in the Word of God, so that the Word of God can dwell richly within us as the Spirit of God uses His Word to help us to live in obedience to Him. That is what happened in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. But what was the effect, the gift of tongues and the response in verse 4? And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now here, the Spirit of God comes, baptizes them as is spoken of in Acts chapter 1, verse 5, baptizes them into the body, and it says here, they are filled with the Holy Spirit, which, who gave them the ability to speak in other known languages. It is with the filling and power of the Holy Spirit that they have this special spiritual gift. They spoke in languages that they did not know. Now, as a side note, there are some who believe that this particular gift continues today. Now, whether or not one believes the gifts continue today or have ceased, everyone agrees that this particular account is extremely clear. The gift of tongues were known languages. They were known languages. That is clear explicitly in verse 6. When it says, 
There was a sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. In his own language. This wasn't some gibberish. This wasn't some unintelligible angelic speech. This was a known language. And then it gives all of the list of where these Jews had come from. Everyone agrees on that. This is the clearest example in the Bible of what the gift of tongues looks like, that of a known language. Secondly, charismatics or continuationists, as sometimes they're called, who believe in tongues continuing today would agree as well that the manifestation of tongues in a known language has ceased that the regular manifestation of tongues as a known language has ceased. Some may claim some examples way out someplace on the mission field, but no one claims that the gift of tongues can step up. No one can step up and say they have the gift of tongues and speak in a known language in this world. Now, there are some, when the Pentecostal charismatic movement first began, in the late 1800s and the turn of the 19th hundreds there, that the early Pentecostals believed that the text of Scripture, as it's stated here, was known languages and that they continued on today. In fact, what they did was they sent missionaries out to the foreign field without any language training, believing that they would be given the gift of tongues to communicate the gospel. There was a man named Charles Parham, one of the early Pentecostals, a key figure in the early days of the movement, who boasted in the Topeka State Journal, quote, The Lord will give us the power of speech to talk to the people of the various nations without having to study them in schools, end quote. A number of weeks later, he told the Kansas City Times, quote, A part of our labor will be to teach the church the uselessness of spending years of time preparing missionaries for work in foreign lands when all they have to do is ask God for power, unquote. And within weeks, the newspapers as far afield as Hawaii were echoing Parham's promise and embellished somewhat, etc. But Robert Mapes Anderson, in his book Vision of the Disinherited, writes, quote, S.C. Todd of the Bible Missionary Society investigated 18 Pentecostals who went to Japan, China, and India expecting to preach to the natives in those countries in their own tongue. And they found that by their own admission, in no single instance have they been able to do so. As these and other missionaries returned in disappointment and failure, Pentecostals were compelled to rethink their original view of speaking in tongues. They saw that Acts chapter 2 was that which spoke of known languages. And before that, no one had really ever, ever held to anything different other than that which was known languages. But because of their experience of going out to the mission field, sending missionaries out to the mission field, and they get there asking God for the gift of tongues and not being able to communicate or not being able to find that they would speak in a known language, they began to reinterpret the other passages of Scripture such that they would call it some type of angelic language, angelic language, not some known language. And so even those who would be cessationists or, or charismatics, I should say, continuationists would see that this particular instance, they would say, 
has ceased. No one today goes and professes to have the gift of tongues who regularly speaks in a known language, known language to others that they themselves do not know. If this particular gift existed today, then one would expect there's no reason why no one would regularly speak this in a known language, this being the clearest example. So, this particular gift, this particular gift in verse 5. Now, there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. Every nation under heaven. Now, Pentecost, as you recall, it was one of three major feasts of the Jewish calendar. As I mentioned before, all the Hebrew men were expected to celebrate it. All the Hebrew men were expected to come. The three that they were all required to come was Pentecost and uh, Passover and the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. The other feasts could be celebrated in one's own hometown. But devout men from every nation under heaven, and simply an idiom, meaning from all around the world, these Jews came since this was a Jewish feast. And then, verse 6, when the sound occurred, the crowd came together and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were bewildered. They were amazed and astonished, saying, why, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Why was this a bewildered or amazed and astonished or shocking, shocking response? Well, two particular reasons. Number one, because they were speaking in a variety of languages, praising God. It says that they were speaking of the mighty deeds of God. Verse 11, we hear them in our own tongue speaking of the mighty deeds of God. Now, that's pretty self-evident. Here are a bunch of Galileans. They're speaking a, a language that they don't know. All these people from around the Jewish world, they are here. They are Jews from the diaspora or the dispersion were from all around the Mediterranean. They've come and they hear the language of their own language, their own heart language, and they're utterly astonished. That's part of it. But what was even more astonishing, they were telling of the mighty deeds of God, it says. They were astonished that it was Galileans who were praising God in a Gentile language. In a Gentile language. See, when Jews who were... Uh, part of some synagogue in other parts of the Mediterranean would go to the synagogue. Do you know what they would hear the Word of God in? They would hear it in Hebrew, or they would hear it in Aramaic, another dialect there. Hebrew or Aramaic, they wouldn't hear it in their own language, speaking of the mighty deeds of God. This was unheard of. It would be like hearing the Word of God in your very own language rather than in Latin from Jerome's Vulgate. This was shocking to them. Shocking to them to hear the Word of God in their own language for the very first time. Secondly, because these were Galileans. These were Galileans. Why? Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And you see, Galileans, they weren't looked upon as very favorable. They weren't looked upon as people who were very educated. In fact, they were looked upon as people who were rather ignorant, people who were rather uneducated. In John chapter 7, verse 41, the people were debating about Jesus, and it says there still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the Scriptures said that Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? 
Jesus of Nazareth from Galilee. Galileans had a reputation. They had a reputation for being um, somewhat backwards, people who were not sophisticated, people who had a reputation for being rebellious and disregarding the Jewish law, Acts chapter 5, verse 37. Simply on the basis of where Jesus was from, he couldn't possibly be the Messiah. When Philip found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, he went and told Nathanael. He ran up to Nathanael and said, Nathanael, Nathanael, I found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathanael, do you remember what he said? He said in John 1, 45, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Or even when Nicodemus, Nicodemus tried to defend Jesus, the reply was, you are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Well, it's no wonder that they said what they said in verse 7. Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans, those backwards, uneducated Galileans up there who are kind of rebellious, people who are not so into everything? Shocking. Not only to hear the word of God in their own language, but to hear the word of God from Galileans. Then verse 8. How is it that we hear them in our own language to which we're born? And then it names all of these places where they're from. Parthians, they lived in what is modern Iran. The Medes, also part of the Parthian Empire. Elamites, southwestern Iran. Mesopotamia, around the Tigris and the Euphrates, Judea, the broadest sense, and all of these individuals came from all around the Mediterranean to come to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. They all continued, verse 12, in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? Isn't that interesting? That is a great question. What does this mean? What is the meaning? What is the purpose of speaking in tongues? What is the purpose of this miracle that we see? No longer the scriptures in the Hebrew language or Aramaic. It's in our own tongue. And not only that, it is by these Galileans. That's a great question. What's the purpose? 1 Corinthians chapter 14. If you look at that passage real quick. 1 Corinthians 14 tells us the purpose of tongues, explicitly says what the purpose is in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 20 and 21. Verse 20 and 21, and we'll also be looking at Isaiah chapter 28. Isaiah chapter 28. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 20 and 21, it tells us of what the purpose of the gift of speaking in tongues is for. It says in verse 20, brethren, brethren, do not be children in your thinking. Now, Paul is speaking to the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church is uh, somewhat in chaos. They, are, they have a lot of showboating in terms of uh, those who want to pride themselves in particular spiritual gifts. They're not orderly. They have sin that has infected the church. It says, don't be children in your thinking. Yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. In other words, grow up. Grow up in your thinking. In the law it is written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people, 
And even so, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then, verse 22, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. All right? Tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. Now, you look at that quote in verse 21, and you say, where does that quote come from, and how does it function in this particular passage of the purpose of tongues? Why is this happening here, as the people in Acts 2 were asking? So we look at Isaiah 28. Isaiah 28, the quote comes from there, and it comes from uh, 28 verse 11. But let me give you a little context as to Isaiah chapter 28. Isaiah chapter 28, Isaiah prophesies to the southern kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah. And he begins by saying in uh, chapter uh, one, uh, chapter 28, verse 1, Woe to the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim and to the fading flowers of its glorious beauty, which is the head of the fertile valley. And then he continues on. So let me give you a little context so as we read Isaiah 28, we'll understand. You may recall from your studies of the Old Testament that Israel was in bondage in Egypt. Israel was in bondage in Egypt. And God delivered them through the Passover, and uh, they crossed the Red Sea, went to Mount Sinai, got the Ten Commandments, and they crossed as a people, and they were going to go into the Promised Land. They disobeyed God, they wandered the desert, and then by the leadership of Joshua, he leads them into the Promised Land, and he conquers a great deal of it. Okay, they settle in the promised land, the Israelites do. And there are 12 tribes. There are 12 tribes. So Israel settles in the promised land, and they look around at the nations around them. And they say, you know what? We want a king, just like those nations around us. We want a human king, just like those nations around us. And so God gives them a king, King Saul. And there are three kings over all the nation of Israel. Saul, and then David, and then Solomon. Saul, David, and Solomon. After Solomon died, there was a civil war, and the nation of Israel divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was composed of 10 tribes, 10 tribes. After Solomon, the person who led those 10 tribes at first was a man named Jeroboam. And every single king in history in the Old Testament that led the northern kingdom of what was called Israel was wicked, was evil, didn't honor God, didn't follow God. The southern kingdom was called the kingdom of Judah, composed of two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. They had some good, some bad kings. And so in, verse, in chapter 28 of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is prophesying, basically saying to the kingdom of Judah, look and see what has happened to the kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel also sometimes called Ephraim. Look at them and see what has happened. And as a warning, don't be like them. So here he says they've become drunk. They have become people who uh, the Lord has brought judgment upon like a storm in chapter verse 2. He cast it to the earth with his hand. The proud crown of the drunkards of Edom are trodden underfoot and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is at the head of the fertile valley. And he continues on basically saying, you look at 
Israel, look at northern kingdom of Israel, Ephraim. They were proud. Their fading beauty is going away. The spirit of justice for him who sits, he's going to sit in judgment. He's going to sit in judgment and reel in wine. He says to them, verse 10, order, he says, uh, verse 9, to whom would he teach knowledge and to whom would he interpret the message? Those just weaned from the milk, from milk, those just taken from the breast, for he says, order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. In other words, in verses 1 through 10, this is a drunken, rebellious Ephraim, a drunken, rebellious northern kingdom that God was going to bring judgment upon. Look at their attitude. Who is he going to give knowledge to, verse 9? Who's going to interpret this message? These, these children who say order on order, and in the Hebrew it's sav la slav, sav la slav, klav la klav, klav la klav, zirasham, and it continues on. This is the mockery of the northern kingdom of Israel to God. Imitations of a child's babbling on, sort of like when a kid mocks somebody who tells them in a story, mocks them, yada, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Such a sour attitude. That's what this says. And Isaiah then says, he then says in verse 11, indeed, he will speak to this people through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. This was the verse that is quoted in 1 Corinthians 14. By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people. Now, what does that mean? That God would speak to this people, Isaiah says. He would speak to this people, the Jews, through a people who were foreigners. Who were foreigners. Why? Because his own people wouldn't listen to him. They, 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 they scorned the word of the Lord. And what happened? We know in history what happened to Ephraim or the northern kingdom of Israel. The northern kingdom of Israel, the Lord sent Assyria, the reigning power, to judge them. And in 722, he decimated them and he deported the people. That's what God did to the northern kingdom of Israel. God would send foreigners to judge Israel. And Isaiah was saying to Judah, the southern kingdom, look at what happened. God judged them by a foreign people. God judged them by sending a people who didn't speak their language. And you'd better be warned. And yet, the southern kingdom of Israel, as you know, they had some good kings, but they had some that didn't follow the word of the Lord. And so God also sent judgment to them. And in 586 B.C., he sent Babylon to conquer and deport into exile the southern kingdom of Judah. So, back in 1 Corinthians 14. In the law it is written, by men of strange tongues, by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people. And even so, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then, tongues, verse 22, are for a sign not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. What kind of sign? What kind of sign were they? They were a sign of God's impending judgment. They were a sign of God's impending judgment. Just as in the Old Testament Isaiah, when they scorned God, they rejected the prophets of God, God judged them by a people of a foreign tongue. 
And here in the New Testament, because the Jews would reject the Messiah, God would send judgment upon them as well, setting Israel aside and bringing in whom? People from every tongue and tribe and nation into what we know as the church. This is the purpose of tongues, as it is stated in 1 Corinthians 14. They are a sign. They are a sign, a sign of judgment. And by the way, this particular gift of languages or gift of tongues really lasted only 25 years. This particular book, Book of Acts there, written chronicles about the time of A.D. 30, maybe the latter part of May in A.D. 30. The last book that ever mentions anything about the gift of tongues is in Corinthians. And that was written about A.D. 55, roughly 25 laters, years later. After that, all of the other letters of the New Testament, all of the other epistles of the New Testament, all the way up until the last book was written in the mid-90s, nothing in the mention of tongues. No evidence that the scriptures say that people continue to speak in a known language that was not known to the speaker. So what happened in Acts chapter 2? This amazing birth of the new church, these times of excitement, the disciples were baptized, placed into the body of Christ. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were speaking in known languages to the people, Jews from all parts of the Mediterranean who had come, and they heard the word of God in their own language, whereas in the past they heard it in Hebrew and Aramaic, and this was astounding because these were Galileans, and they were speaking in tongues to these people, these Jews, by and large the nation that would reject the Messiah that they would preach to them. And in speaking in tongues, it was a sign of impending judgment that the nation of Israel would be placed aside. And here was the birth of the church, the true children of God, not ones that were born as the seed of Abraham, not ones that were of ethnicity, but people from every tongue and tribe and nation God would bring into his church. That is the privilege that we have, don't we? Of being a part of God's own people, a people for his own possession. What a privilege it is to be called children of God. That is ours as a privilege and a responsibility, same time. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Our God in heaven, what a wonderful, wonderful, exciting account of the birth of the church, the church that will surround your throne, symbolized by the elders that are bowing and talking casting their crowns in worship to you. What a privilege it will be to stand with your people around your throne in the future, to lift our voices in praise, to serve you for all eternity. Oh God, what a privilege it is to be called sons and daughters of God. Thank you. In Jesus' most precious name, amen.